0: And welcome back to The Spectator's podcast. I'm Laura Prendergast. This week, we look at the rise of woke corporations and how concepts like microaggressions, allyship and toxic masculinity are now starting to enter the workplace. We also hear about Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. He's fallen from grace, but does he have anyone to blame but himself? Plus, we hear about Shanghai's marriage markets and there's even an apology from Rod Little at the end. So, how woke is your office? In this week's issue, Toby Young looks at how social justice mantras have entered into working life. He joins me now, along with Barclay Wild, the director of Diversity Trust, a company which offers services for unconscious bias training, diversity programme advice, and training against discrimination of all minorities. So Toby, in your piece you talk about this idea of the woke corporation. Can you start by explaining what exactly you mean by that?
1: Yes, so... What I'm talking about is the spread of culture that developed in mainly American universities. What what we think of as the social justice left, concerned about white privilege, about heteronormativity, all that's contributed to the kind of McCarthyite Maoist atmosphere at American universities, has now spread far. And wide into the corporate world. It's already it had already spread, I think, into the public sector, but the relatively new development is it spread into the corporate sector. And it's really quite extraordinary and almost comic that large global multi-billion pound consultancies like Accenture now have these kind of diversity and inclusion officers and new recruits go through this induction process in which they're encouraged to wear. Rainbow colored lanyards with the word ally written on them to show that they are allies of various oppressed victim groups, LGBTQ, whatever, and so forth. And uh, it's just so odd, on the one hand, kind of absurd and funny that these multi billionaire capitalist corporations have embraced. This kind of weird neo-Marxist postmodern kind of gobbledygook, but actually it's also quite sinister because people are you know losing their jobs and, and their livelihoods uh, for failing to comply with this new orthodoxy.
0: Well, one of the things you talk about in your piece is unconscious bias training, and and Berkeley, you are and your company runs unconscious bias training workshops. Can you can you tell us a bit about what what that involves and what sort of training you offer companies?
2: Yeah, so one of the things that we offer to organisations is that we provide them with equality, diversity and inclusion training. And part of that might be work around unconscious bias. You know, I think one important point for me is that we are encouraging, and I think Toby used the word encouraging, people to perhaps you know, wear a, a rainbow lanyard to show their support. You know, The Rainbow Laces campaign that's been embraced by a lot of sports people has been something that I think has been really positive to show how people are you know, potential allies, along with you having your rainbow or ally ship rec- recognized in your email signature. I think I think these are tiny little, small kind of steps that people can take to show that they are supporting communities that perhaps have been discriminated against or disadvantaged in the past, and you know. In the grand scheme of things, I think when we are talking about encouraging people to do these things, we're not really, it's not social engineering, it's not kind of, you know, p- people losing their jobs. It's just about encouraging that visibility. So, And in terms of the training that we provide around unconscious bias, it's, it's about hopefully waking people up to the fact that they... You know, we all have bias, I have bias, Toby has bias, we all do. Um, it's about kind of encouraging people to think that, but nobody's forcing people out of jobs that I'm aware of.
1: Okay, Barclay, there's quite a lot of meat to chew on there. But one thing that stood out in what you just said was including the word equality alongside diversity and inclusion. And that that, I think, is a relatively recent development. So we came across, in my research, came across one company, I think it was KPMG, currently advertising for a diversity, inclusion and social equality officer. And it just seemed to me to be completely bizarre that a firm of what are essentially tax accountants who advise companies on how to minimise their tax burden, should want to appoint an officer responsible for social equality. The reason this isn't as contradictory as it sounds is because what what the social justice left means by equality, and they often use the word equity instead, is proportional representation. So what they mean is women and minorities properly represented in proportion to their percentage of the general population at board and senior management level, and in some cases throughout the company. And of course, they wildly overestimate the number of LGBTQ people there are in the general population. It's about 6%, but most companies want to employ about 10% of LGBTQ employees and so forth. The left seems to have abandoned its concern for old-fashioned inequality, income inequality, and focused instead almost exclusively on just equal representation for members of various designated identity groups and that's been great for the corporation because it means ah we can finally be embraced by these social justice warriors good example Procter and Gamble producing its kind of toxic masculinity Gillette ad
2: I I completely agree I think one of the the things that I did soon after the last general election was I started working as a volunteer at my local food bank I did that because I was so outraged at the uh, reaction that was going on through the austerity measures that had been brought in by the previous government but don't forget that the Home Secretary in 2010, when she came in, Theresa May, removed socioeconomic status from the Equality Act. So whereas you have under the Equality Act 2010 protections for race, ethnicity, gender, sex, disability, etc., you no longer have socioeconomic status. So that's why the emphasis has been put on those other terms in terms of identity and identity politics. So that's, I think, you know, one answer to your question. I'd also like to pick up on the Gillette-toxic masculinity argument Argument. Just, just a point, really. I was really amused because I know a lot of people that picked up on the toxic masculinity agenda from Gillette were also very angry about Greg's selling vegan sausage rolls. Well, certainly hasn't done Gregs very much harm in terms of them announcing their first time at reaching a billion pounds in profit. So I think you know. My ultimate goal is to make a better world for everyone. That's what I want to create. And I want to do that through equality, diversity and inclusion. And I personally have been working around equality for well over two decades. So this is not a new phenomenon. Barkley,
1: Barkley, if if that is your object and that's a laudable ambition, I'd like just to drill down a bit into the methods you're using to try and achieve these objectives. So yeah, everyone agrees that uh, we want to eliminate prejudice, discrimination of all kinds from the workplace. Uh, that, that, that's a kind of shared objective. It doesn't matter really what your politics are. I think everyone agrees with that objective. But the problem is, uh, the social justice left has diagnosed the cause of outcome disparities between men and women, between racial minorities and Caucasians and so forth, as being caused by unconscious bias. And this has now led to an $8 billion a year industry diversity and bias training in the US. So recently, Starbucks sent its 175,000 employees on a kind of bias training day. And this kind of absolute almost pie-in-the-sky, gobbledygook nonsense, this belief that if you send people on a course, a one-day course, in, and, and make them sit the implicit association test, that you're going to eliminate this bias and create a level playing field in the kind of corporate workplace. I mean, one of the reasons that's so misguided is because there is no evidence. Well, first of all, the implicit association test itself, that's the main test used that whereby diversity trainers try and persuade these uh, clients that they are suffering from uncompromising Conscious bias. I mean, there's first of all, when people take that test, the, the results differ wildly each time. So it doesn't seem to be recording any permanent feature of people's characters. Secondly, there's no evidence at all that having sat that test, if people who perform badly on it are going to be more discriminatory and people who perform well are less discriminatory. There's no, there seems to be no evidence of that either. But really importantly, there was some research published in the journal of applied psychology which i refer to in my article which showed that actually far from reducing discriminatory behavior diversity training actually has the opposite has the unintended consequence of making people more likely to discriminate against people and to stereotype people who aren't like them i mean it's just absolute snake oil
2: well that's why i'm in the business of social change so it's not just one intervention i i train my background is in partly in health promotion and i I know that if I run a campaign or create an, a specific intervention that is one of many factors that will influence someone's behaviour change so if that's stopping smoking or quitting drinking or dietary changes or whatever that is, you don't only have one intervention you don't only have one training course it's part of a much broader mix certainly your experience and what you're talking about in terms of that research is not our experience, what we find is that people leave the training they carry on that conversation, they take it into their team meetings, they talk about it and even will impact on people's lives outside of work so they'll they'll start to challenge people perhaps that they wouldn't have challenged before if they're being racist or sexist and certainly the starbucks training came out of the fact that there are staff being racist towards customers i don't want to live in a world where people are racist well that's actually
1: that was that's 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 um that's the exact circumstances in which starbucks self-diagnosed itself as racist are A little bit murky. And I think that the reason this is important is not just because, you know, you don't want people to waste money on snake oil. It's also because, you know, if you are genuinely concerned about the underrepresentation of of minorities and women, let's try and understand why that is. Let's not invent reasons. Oh, it's because not enough people are wearing rainbow coloured lanyards.
2: Okay, you know, I'd really welcome evaluation, and we do openly welcome evaluation. We quite often build evaluation programs into our training delivery, and that's why we partner with higher education, with universities, to actually look at the impact that the interventions have. But, you know, I'll, I'll just come back to that point that I think it's not one single intervention, it's a range of different interventions. And we have seen social change. You know, we've seen social change over the last 50 years, and the equalities legislation that we have in the UK now, I think to be celebrated. You know, the fact that people are protected from discrimination whilst they're at work or whilst they're trying to access services is not a bad thing. And if educating people, making people aware that, you know, there's, there's no badness in any of that, it doesn't have to be mandatory. We don't have to have, you know, compulsory mandatory training where we have run those kind of programmes. We have found that there are some people that just don't show up and we've run mop-up sessions to support those people. But at the end of the day, the haters will continue to hate that's the reality. You know, we've seen a significant increase in the number of hate crimes that have been reported in the last two years. I I want to create a world, which I hope Toby does too, in which those kind of hate crimes no longer happen. And we should be working together rather than against each other.
1: Barclay, all the data suggesting that there's been a rise in hate crimes in the last couple of years, which people often link to the EU referendum is, I'm afraid, completely unreliable. Uh, The reporting mechanisms have changed, the definition of hate crime is very fluid, and there are no two police forces which have the same definition. And some police forces include what they describe as non-crime hate incidents, not actually hate crimes, in their hate crime data. So I'm afraid we can't confidently say that hate crimes have increased in the past two years.
2: So for example, for the the first 45 years of my life, I didn't experience any hate crime. I've experienced four hate crimes in the last two years. So I really struggle to understand how Toby can say that there hasn't been an increase in hate crime. When I work with hate crime services, that's part of what we deliver. I know that we are having a significant increase in the number of people coming forward to get support. That's not about police data, that's about real people's lives being impacted by hate crime. Thank
0: you, Toby and Berkeley.
1: Hello, I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator.
2: I'm the host of our weekly books podcast, where we have guests ranging from the authors of fiction to historians and critics and philosophers talking about everything and anything to do with the world of books we've had in recent months from the thriller writer lee child to the historian peter Frankopan. we've had deborah lipstadt on anti-semitism judith carr on the mog books and wendy cope on her wonderful poetry we hope there's something there for everyone and if you think there might be all you need to do is search for spectator books on the itunes store or whichever your podcast provider is and sign up to get a weekly dose of spectator books conversation
0: In Canada, Justin Trudeau, their Prime Minister, has enjoyed a glowing rep- reputation so far. He's certainly a fan of the woke agenda, but in the past few weeks, his premiership has been clouded by scandal. Leah McLaren writes in this week's issue about how even though the scandal may seem pretty boring to us here in Britain, for Canada, it's big news and is causing all sorts of problems for the PM. Leah joins me now, along with and Checo, a Canadian journalist who writes for The Guardian. So Leah, can you briefly explain to listeners who perhaps haven't been following Canadian pro- politics quite so closely what exactly has happened and why this is such a big deal for Justin Trudeau?
3: So basically what happened was shortly after Christmas, anonymous reports came out in the Globe and Mail, which is very unusual for the Globe, that Jody Wilson-Raybould had been subjected, that she and her staff had been subjected to a sustained campaign of pressure by the PM. And that's why she had been, because she was recently demoted in January. She was had the twin portfolio of Attorney General and Justice Minister. And in a sort of surprise cabinet shuffle, Trudeau clearly demoted her to Veterans Affairs Minister, which was surprising to a lot of people because she obviously was this big star and she's the only Aboriginal female MP in his cabinet and was thought to be a pretty trusted minister. The Justice Committee called a hearing and Rabel Wilson testified, a few people testified, but her testimony was quite explosive and that was last week. And she outlined this sort of period of a few weeks, might have even been a couple of months when the Prime Minister's office tried to get her to reverse a decision that she had made, which was to, to lay charges against NSC Lavallin which is an engineering, a sort of multinational engineering firm that's based in Montreal that employs about 50,000 people, Montreal being the prime minister's hometown where his constituency is. If it is true, is not illegal but clearly unethical because, as you know, in Britain particularly, the Attorney General, I believe, is, is quite a separate office from Westminster. So it was a, you know, if, if we are to believe her, it was a violation of her, her role.
0: And Leyland, in Leah's piece, she—I mean—she says that, how, however you see this, it's either a kind of non-event or a moral catastrophe. I mean, I mean how do you see it?
4: Um, I think with the the kind of parochial nature of Canadian politics, it's tempting to dismiss this, you know, the scandal away. And I think you know a lot of liberals are doing that. They're saying, you know, Jody Wilson-Raybould is is just kind of, you know either misremembering or or kind of, you know, this is her interpretation of interactions with the Prime Minister's office. And you know, no 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 ill will was was meant by the Prime Minister's office or his aides. And it's just kind of an essentially, you know, he said, she said, non-event. If you're the Conservatives, however, you're looking at this and you're saying, you know, this is this is rampant corruption, you know, this is a a blow to the Prime Minister's moral authority. We want him to to resign. You know, the New New Democratic Party is saying we need an in independent public inquiry as soon as possible. But irrespective of kind of how political actors are coming down on this, I think it's it's really critical that listeners realize that there have been material consequences to this scandal. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has lost Jody Wilson-Raybould as a cabinet minister. She was a very visible part of his government. He quite publicly and quite abruptly lost Jane Philpott, the Treasury Board Secretary, who... Like Wilson Raybould was a rising star in the Liberal Party. Justin Trudeau has lost Gerald Butts, his longtime principal, secretary, close friend. So I think that, you know, irrespective of of how, you know, political actors will make hay of this, there have been quite politically damaging aspects to this crisis for the Trudeau government.
0: I mean, obviously, he's positioned himself as a sort of holier-than-thou politician. I mean, do you think Canadians have been quite surprised to see cracks appear in that persona?
3: You know, I think Canadians, the Canadian relationship with Trudeau is a little more complicated than the international liberal one, but it's it's sort of like the way, you know, Brits have a very complicated relationship with the royals compared to Americans and Canadians who just sort of love them. He had good approval ratings, but he was seen as sort of viewed as holier than now by a lot of conservatives. The nickname for him was the Dauphin. He has a lot of things about him that wouldn't rec- recommend him. He's a sort of rich kid who floundered around for a long time, but then he did win this landslide majority that nobody expected in 2015 and it was really an emotional moment for a lot of people because it came after the better part of a decade of the previous premiership of Stephen Harper who was the opposite of Trudeau I mean he was not an inspirational leader he was, he ruled by fear and he there was a lot of opacity and didn't give interviews openly loathe the press. And so Trudeau just, it was like this breath of fresh air. So it it really was a bit of a golden moment. But that seems to be over.
0: And what happens now? I mean, is there a chance that Trudeau could resign? Or are we going to see it blow over?
4: So what happens next? I think it's difficult to see the Prime Minister resigning from this. On Monday, he came out with a quite forceful show of support from key cabinet members, including Foreign Minister Christia Freeland, Environment Minister Catherine McKenna, you know, essentially saying we're going to weather this storm. And he had all remaining 33 members of cabinet issue, you know, statements of support saying I have full confidence in the prime minister. So while Conservative leader Andrew Scheer would probably like to see Justin Trudeau step down before the election, I think that, you know, while he sustained pretty clear political damage. I think that he's in a position right now with the support of cabinet to fully weather the storm. If something else drops, um, you know, it could completely change the calculus. The election is still seven months away. But at this point right now, it feels like, you know, he's not quite ready to toss his hat into the ring.
1: From Canada to
0: China, where Cindy Yu, our podcast editor, has just been to visit Shanghai's marriage market. Cindy joins me now, along with Yuan Ren, who writes about China for the Daily Mail.
5: So Cindy, you've recently been to this marriage market in Shanghai. What was it like? So I'd heard about this marriage market from Chinese media and a little bit about it on Western media as well. And it's it's bizarre really. Picture a public park and on the paths of this public park there will be loads and loads of umbrellas set on the ground and on each umbrella there will be a dating profile in a sheet of A4 Um, this dating profile will have all the vital information about the person you're trying to sell in inverted commas and also the sort of person you want to attract for the person you're matchmaking for but it's not the singles themselves who are there it's the parents of the singles and these are maybe 60, 70 something year olds really worried about their grown-up children still unmarried. So there'll be 30-something-year-old children who are just not married yet. And given that they're Chinese parents, they're super worried. So worried that they're out in the cold (laughs) to matchmake physically. And, I mean, is there a high success rate? No. I mean, no one's done a study on it per se, but one father I talked to who's a university lecturer told me that, you know, in absolute numbers it must be quite high just because of the sheer volume and footfall of people going through it. But in ratio terms, barely. He's been there. he had been there for three years. Gosh, yeah. And you've you've spent time in China as well. I mean, have you have you seen similar
0: things to this?
6: It's it's quite a rare phenomenon. I've been to the only one that I know about in Beijing is in like a really famous kind of tourist park. I don't I don't think it's it's kind of a, a vestige of maybe a trend that was around many years ago. But I think it. While it's very rare, I think it's a good kind of representation of the kind of ideas that parents have, the sort of thoughts that go through their heads um, when they are matchmaking. Matchmaking is huge. So this I guess kind of crystallizes what you know what's happening all over the country in a very specific location.
0: Cindy, one of the things you talk about are these lists of sort of features mm-hmm. that people want. I mean, are those is that important to Chinese parents, the kind of what someone looks like and how tall they are? <laughs>
5: <laughs> how tall they are, definitely, but actually not so much what someone looks like. I mean, you can't really put down on a piece of paper what someone looks like because, you know, Chinese people will have brown hair, brown eyes, so you can't really say I want an eight out of ten daughter in law. <laughs> but height is definitely a thing and I mentioned in my piece that even though I'm five five, I'm considered tall in China and that's a good thing for a woman, but for a man you have to be at least, you know, five or seven centimetres taller than a woman as well. But other criteria are actually, you know, when you talk to the parents, it's not so important if someone has a car or a house. They just want their Daughter, or son to be married off. And and have you got experience of being out in China and dating?
0: Do you, do you have you kind of seen any other side of this? this
6: yeah, there's two. I mean, modern dating can changed so quickly, and actually, I think it's almost dating East West has become quite similar because apps are really big in China and matching. If you think about it, whether it's somebody matching for you in the UK, apps are basically automatic matches. You know, somebody is the intermediate in all of this. But yeah, people online, it's huge, I would say as huge as it is here. But at the same time, while the online is expanding, offline, people are still meeting each other through friends uh, there's a huge social network that basically really helps and supports young people it's like Mulan but much much more supportive and nobody berates you for it I
0: mean, one of the things Cindy talks about in her piece is that younger people just aren't as bothered like, about getting married? I mean, is that,
6: something, is that something that you've kind of noticed? No, not at all. I think, if anything, young people are more bothered about it these days because there's so much talk about it in the social media, the whole, you know, leftover women, the phenomena, as it were, that, um, you know, if you're not married by the late 20s, that it's something to be worried about. So it's, it's really prominent in the media, in TV shows. It's a big theme everywhere. So people are much more aware of it, and I think... With kind of economic development, what you call criteria, like and what people have, the material background, is increasingly more relevant to, I'd say, the middle class. Cindy, did you get the impression that
0: the parents who were there were more worried about... Their sons or their
5: daughters, if, if kind of if this idea of leftover women is such a kind of problem. Mm, so there was a huge gender imbalance at the market, and about maybe about seventy five percent of the people there were looking for daughters. Sorry, looking for their single daughters, men, and you know if you were if you were there with a single son, you know you were hot property, <laughs> and you know maybe that and that maybe that is a reflection of this patriarchal notion of leftover women. And I just couldn't quite work it out because the gender imbalance in China, you know, there's a huge sex sex ratio imbalance because of the one-child policy. That meant boys were more preferable, and if you could only have one child, you'd go for a boy. Which means that there are thirty million extra men in China than there are women's. And I just couldn't see, I didn't see that reflected in the market at all. And like Yuan said, maybe that's because they're middle-class families. So these are women who are qualified, educated, working in great professions, who aren't, you know, the bottom of the barrel really, mm. but who have high expectations. One of the things that the most striking bits of your piece was where you talk about this
0: father and his daughter's in Sydney and she's what sort of in her mid thirties and she's presumably having quite a good time in Sydney, but I mean is he is that father is he genuinely holding out hope that he's gonna find find a a for his well, he just daughter. asked me,
5: you know, what else, what else can I do? And he'd been there for three years. <laughs> so he'd. She's 39 now. So he'd been going since she was 36. And obviously, she's not around. So maybe it's a way of him feeling that he's helping her in her life somehow. But yeah, I mean, he, he, I don't know if he really expects success, but he just he doesn't know what else to do.
0: And you and just finally, I mean, why do you think I mean, I assume all parents always want their children to be happy. But I mean, is there something in particular in China at the moment that means that they're feeling particularly kind of keen to make sure their children are married off
6: yeah i think there's a lag behind with parents you know women particularly the women from single child families they've had this the same upbringing as their male peers because of having all the investment in one child and so you have a lot of high flying women who are financially stable on their own but the parents are still from a different era and know, in their mind, they see real security coming from having a man take take that daughter away uh, from them. Yeah, and it's it's something that they can do. So I think a lot of the time, actually, I've come across a case where somebody was working in the UK and their mother was basically flogging them on an on on a uh, internet app. Um.
5: <laughs> we should say that there's no money actually involved. We call it <laughs> no. a market, but we're no, um. not actually
0: people with, with these parents, would they be happy with their child marrying anyone, or does it, I mean, would they prefer it to be a, someone Chinese? Is it? I mean, are they just happy for? I think there's married? Uh,
6: there's actually a, a prestige in marrying someone who's not Chinese in China. It's kind of not spoken about, and nobody would quite like to admit it. But there is, and I think with women, the, the reason that women their age is more significant is because it's accepted that men can always go for younger women, and that somehow age is associated with the value of the woman. So you know you suffer for less when you're older, basically. So that concept really undervalues women after a particular age.
0: Thank you, Cindy and Yuan. Hello, I am Lara Prendergast, Spectator Life's food and drink editor, and I'm Olivia Potts, Spectator Life's vintage chef. Join us for a new podcast from Spectator Radio, Table Talk. Where we chat to guests ranging from Prue Leith to Briony Gordon about their life through food. Just search for Spectator Radio on the iTunes store. And finally, 12 years after James Bartholomew wrote about how he was taking his daughter Alex out of school to homeschool her and to teach her how to paint like Suzanne, and Rod Little then responded by saying how stupid this was, Rod has now had a change of heart, and in his column this week apologises to James. Rod and James both join me now. So Rod, you write about wanting to apologise to James in this week's issue. Can you take us through why you want to now say sorry?
7: Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm very, very, very sorry, James. I was wrong and you were right. It's as simple as that. James wrote a column, I think it was in 2006, actually, uh, as long ago as that, in which he talked about how he was going to homeschool his daughter. You know, I think it's Alex, is Alex, uh, am I right? That's right. That's right. And um, I rather took the piss out of it, saying that, you know, we all think we're, we're, we're clever enough to, to homeschool our kids because we're, we're bright. Uh, vibrant people and we're well-read and so on. We we worry about our schools, but that the best people to teach them are in the end professionals, are the teachers. I have now resiled 180 degrees from that perspective. I disagree with it entirely. James was right. And I've come to that conclusion uh, by watching, you know, what happens in the local schools in my area and, you know, what happens to my daughter as well when she's at school.
0: James, I mean, first of all, do you accept fraud's apology?
8: <laughs> well, it's it's been about 12 and a half years, but it's always welcome to have an apology, however however, <laughs> whatever the slow train it came on. <laughs> and I, it was and a it's slow I've yes. noticed that the apology is in one respect of the article rather than various other respects of the article, which... I mean, we agree that I mean, the, the basis on which Rod is now agreeing with me is that the basis of the propaganda, the propaganda in schools, politically correct, left wing, pro climate change, no discussion, no debate. These are the facts, you know, and that kind of thing. Rod has has, uh, has now seen this sufficiently to, to see that that is a problem at, at schools. But there were, I mean, the thing where he was really contemptuous and scornful and derisive of me was in respect of me being aspirational, middle class, bourgeois, liking my dry, crisp wine and going to Lucca and all this sort of stuff. And I was, he was really sneering about this. And I, you know, and I, this is uh, really I'm, I'm waiting for the apology <laughs> exactly. about that. Rod,
0: crisp white wine, is that, I mean, have you changed your views on that? Or are you still contemptuous of.
7: Well, I am actually sipping a glass of Sancerre as (laughs) you speak, so I... I have absolutely no right to castigate poor James for his middle class affectations. We all have them. It's merely me as an old class warrior from Middlesbrough. I always like to think of myself as still being in Middlesbrough, whereas actually I'm in a nice house in the southeast of England and probably have all the same appurtenances as does James. So that, that's probably unfair And I don't well. think you should yes. be
8: ashamed of it. You know, you, 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 you've, you, the fact that you came from Middlesbrough, there's nothing to be ashamed of that, but there's nothing Ashamed, be ashamed in, in buying your crew bourgeois from Bordeaux either. I mean, there's nothing <laughs> wrong with being not. middle class. In fact, I would argue that the British middle class are, you know, the outstanding people of world civilization. Yes, I would dispute that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I would, I'm could to have to write another article disputing that.
0: Rod, can you, can you take us through a bit of you know, what, what some of these lessons are that you're, you know, the children are now being taught in the schools near where you live? Well, yeah,
7: the, the problem is, I, I mean, we know all about the, the sex education stuff. That's been discussed in full. But the stuff which I've seen goes way beyond that. It's in every single subject. So at a local school, a good local school near me, the the second year or year eight kids are being taught in English about identity. And the way they're doing that is looking at ethnic minority poets who are complaining that their identity has been subsumed by the ghastly white majority over here uh, since they've come to the country. If that was a one-off, fine. I think that's a reasonably interesting thing to hear. But it's not, because in history they're doing how colonialism has wrecked Africa which is, to my mind, an absurdity. But also, they're in in uh, geography, they're doing why a lad from Eritrea must be allowed to come to Great Britain to seek asylum. And the, the, these are never... The kids have to to conclusions or they get marked down. It's shocking. I find it genuinely shocking.
8: Yes, you get to the point, as a parent where your child has a question, and you know, you can tell by the way the the question is phrased, what they expect to have as an answer. Yes. And you then, so you then, at at the revolting point where you're advising your child to say something you totally disagree with in order to get the marks.
7: Yes, exactly. That's exactly (laughs) the case. And it it was the case also, and it's the case right now with my sons who are at university, and one of them. I questioned him on one of the essays he was doing. He said, I have to say this, Dad. If I don't, I will be marked down. It's as simple as that. But it's even worse, I think, because at least he's conscious of it. It's even worse when these kids are 12, 13, 14, and they are being given no choice to think effectively. And I know some kids who have, have actually challenged the teacher on a number of issues and they've been told no that's not what we're talking about you're wrong and that's it it's 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 pretty chilly
0: and just finally james did your daughter enjoy being homeschooled and would you recommend it to rod as a as an option at this stage
8: i think she enjoyed it at the time i think in retrospect she wasn't so sure it was a good idea you'd have to ask her now in fact i'd be quite interested if you did ask her but i would i mean i only did it for two years And I would recommend to all parents, if they're even tolerably well-educated, to homeschool for two years, because it's an intensely rewarding experience, certainly for the parents, and I think it will actually diversify the experience of the child.
0: Rod, are you convinced?
8: Well, no,
7: I'd go a lot further than that. Get them out of state school now, whatever you do. Just get them out of state school. They are being fed with bilge, and... And it's also a whole bunch of other things, I mean, which James, I think, partly touched on in, in that 2006 piece, which is the, the denial of excellence, the refusal to, uh, to aspire to excellence. That's all gone. The competitiveness has gone. And the kids need all this. So, yeah, I'm with James entirely. and would probably even go further.
0: Thank you, Rod and James. And that's it for this week. If you've liked the podcast, please do subscribe, rate and review on the iTunes store. We always like hearing from you. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can read all of the pieces discussed in this week's issue, as well as more from Rachel Johnson, Andrew Roberts and Catherine Mayer. And we've got a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues for £12, as well as a £20 John Lewis voucher if you go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week.